0: When you think of a researcher, most people think of professors in universities. When you think of academic books of history, you think of books with chapters. Our guest today disrupts these assumptions and does it with an urban history flair. Welcome to Knowledge and Its Producers, a limited series from the Maidan produced by me and Neymonsur. In each episode we'll be talking to people who are at the forefront of knowledge production, typically away from the traditional educational power structures. We'll be talking to people who curate, who edit, who run research centers, who write, and more. My field is Islamic studies, and we'll be talking to people who fit into the study of Islam in the Muslim-majority world. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be talking about Islam all the time, or that everyone we talked to will be Muslim. It just means that we don't have perfect terms for describing this big intersecting world. Not yet. The goal is to get a wide variety of people talking about different ways of accessing history, ideas, and more to uplift the people we're interviewing and to inspire you. Hamada Shadz is our guest today, and he's an independent historian, a curator, and he's well known for his website Cairo Observer. We're going to be talking to him about his book today, Out 2020 from the American University in Cairo Press, Cairo since 1900. So I like to start with, what did you have for breakfast today?
1: So um, jet lag from a recent trip to the U.S., which meant that sleep is very irregular, which means eating is <laughs> irregular. So, so far it's been... Uh, Coffee and cigarettes, but it's a start.
0: It's, yeah. What do you normally eat for breakfast?
1: Uh, So, my normal breakfast, uh, my favorite, let's say, uh, scrambled eggs that I make myself at home with a significant amount of butter. Oh, there it is. That's why it's your favorite. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) So, you're very difficult to describe to people. I feel like I don't know what to, when I'm mentioning you to people. I thought you were going to say
1: I'm very difficult, period.
0: you you're
1: difficult? Maybe I'm sure a few people say that, but who knows?
0: Is it because your career is so difficult to pin down? Do you
1: feel? Um, I mean, I remember some of my uh, some of the people that I did my PhD with, that the cohort that I was with, uh, uh, a couple of people, uh, definitely one was voicing like, "What is Muhammad doing? Like, what, like, what, what is he doing?" It was very clear for him to understand that why have I not done something that was slightly more expected which is to like start applying for academic jobs before i even finish and uh and just dive right into that and probably stay somewhere in the states um so i think that's a starting point to understanding why maybe it's difficult for people to pin down what i am and what i'm doing even if my cohorts have, have seen it this way um, and I think um, on another ha- on the other hand, I'm also not one of those people that like walks around like parading uh, PhD mm-hmm. degrees. So, uh, so uh, you know, like how you see people like describing themselves uh, consistently as a doctor so and so, and it's a form of sort of gaining prestige. Like you're really capitalizing on your six, seven years of of you know doing a PhD by making sure that everybody knows that. I'm, I don't certainly don't do that and I tend to be uh, a bit I think I'm trying to be approachable and uh, so you know it's a combination between not following a very declared path and self-presentation and how you choose to approach people and all of these things I think that makes it difficult for people so I I would say I'm different people for different people okay so
0: what do you find yourself saying the most when you meet people when when I walk up to you and I say okay someone introduces you as well yeah most people call you Shahed I feel like no one calls you Muhammad yeah like Shahed it's very like you know informal very cool that's sort of how people refer to you as if I was to go up to you at a dinner party and say what do you do what's your
1: job yeah that's like a deathly question for me <laughs> and it depends on when you ask that question uh, last uh, was it last week two weeks ago I did this event um and then there was like an MC that introduces me before I go on the stage, and he said, "So how would you like me to introduce you?" And I said, "Oh, author of uh, this book, Chiro since 1900, um, And then you can say curator, and then he said, "No, no, no, aren't you just like Cairo observer?" And I was like, "Okay, sure, you can, you, you can do that too." <laughs> you know what I mean? So it depends, and I I think um, my the way I would answer the question would honestly depend on what I'm working on most recently, and like, that's that would be the most relevant, yeah.
0: So in addition to being an author and then the editor and main force behind Cairo Observer the blog, you're also a curator.
1: Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's interesting, it's one of those things uh, where, I mean, there, there's a constant imposter syndrome that, that chases, at least I know many people, who, but not everybody admits it, I certainly have it, which is, uh, you know, am I really a curator, am I really a doctor, am I really a historian, And you know, and it depends. Um, on um, and honestly, how did you do what you're doing, but also how it's being received from the other side. And so it's like, no, it's not also very easy for me to like walk around and use these titles because I feel like it's, it's the, I, I can't define myself in general as this, this, or that, but it depends again on what it is that, that occupies me uh, at the present. So I, I like to think of myself as someone who's comfortable with uh, changing their skin, the way they present themselves, and it honestly just depends on what I'm producing at the time.
0: So what you're producing, we mentioned some of sort of the things that you produce, um, but what motivates you? What pushes you to do the work that you do, which is basically to showcase Cairo as a city, um, showcase the Middle East as a region that produces material. I think that's how I would describe you. I don't know if that's fair. Um, just based on some of your curatorial experiences, um, what motivates you? what pushes you forward and why specifically did you choose this non-traditional path?
1: That's a good question. I mean I think motivation um, I, I mean it's the, it's the classic struggle I suppose between like you know meaning and and then like, the reality of like having to pay your bills and uh, you know people dream up about having a family and then so that becomes the main thing and so I don't know and, and for me it's um, it's not that philosophical I suppose but I definitely have a meter that measures do I really want to be doing this right now and uh, sometimes uh, it's more satisfying than others sometimes it's more rewarding than others but I think that's really the main thing that gets me going is how much do I how badly do I really want to get this project done uh, and, and that gets me going and, and it makes me open up ideas and because there's, I think there's nothing worse for me than to find myself in a situation where in a professional setting I have to do something that, that's not the most satisfying. Uh, the challenge with this is not every satisfying project is a well-paying project or not every satisfying project is... It, they all have caveats and I think it's just a challenge of trying to figure out how to come out of it feeling rewarded or fulfilled somehow. I would say that's really what's driving me.
0: So what about
1: audience? Does audience drive you? That's, a, that's another interesting question because I, for the longest time, um, I was, I had a very contradictory and I'm, you know, so this is me thinking afterwards and reflecting on it. I had a very contradictory relationship between what I do and the, the, the issue of audience because a lot of what I wanted to do uh, was about engagement with the public. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, I would shy away from, from trying to actually engage with what that means uh, in the sense that I'm not asking people, so you know, what you, I'm not, I'm, I'm not looking for gratification uh, in that way. But at the same time, uh, I put myself out there, but it also raises a lot of insecurities uh, that have to do with wanting to make sure that what you're doing does also not just mean something to you or for, to me, but also means something to someone else. And so, uh, you know, when when. Years after Tire Observer I stopped being super active in 2016, I got busy with other projects and the general environment um, Egypt didn't feel like it was the most conducive to, you know, to blogging about urban issues in a city that was transforming really quickly and also in a publishing kind of atmosphere that wasn't very encouraging of multiple voices. So I slowed down a lot and despite that, uh, you know, people are still talking about it, and still asking me about it. They're still sending me content that they want to see posted on the, on the blog. And so that's an audience that's out there that I just haven't thought about. You know what I mean? Which is unfortunate, I think, on my part. And I think it's this part of growing back to this idea of refusing to accept sometimes that um, you are doing something great that people are interested in. And it's not about just you, it's about an audience that's actually engaged with your content. Um, so yeah, the audience is is an interesting question. As I, I don't have a, like a clear approach to how I deal with this yet, but it's definitely something that I need to be thinking about more. Especially as I'm doing you know things like publishing, whether it's a blog, things like an exhibition, things like publishing a book, or you know speak, public speaking. These are all things that involve an audience, so it's not just. Um, yeah, there's a whole room full of, of, of people listening or people at home reading the website or but people hopefully that are, you know, buying books. And, and so um, I don't think it should be necessarily the driving force because this is how you end up doing sort of populist, uh, I suppose. Not that that's a bad thing, but like, you know, you sh- you sh- I think people should be driven by the questions and issues that really excite them. Uh, as opposed to the ones that they feel like this is what's trendy this is what people want to learn about or hear about
0: so curating blogging writing books like Cairo since 1900 which is very much a guidebook but it's also very heavily researched those weren't necessarily skills you get in graduate school to what extent are you self-taught to what extent were you taught by your peers to what extent were you taught by graduate
1: school I mean, the graduate school was a very important formative experience for me, especially coming out of an undergrad degree in architecture, which um, um, prepares you as a student to be a very specific thing, um, an architect, (laughs) and with a very specific understanding of what that is. Um, And um, you miss out on a lot of things. And I think grad school, led the humanities, for example, were are not very uh, present in architectural education, I would say across the entire, you know, everywhere. Um, so, so graduate school was was um, an opportunity for me to open up to these other important fields, ideas. Um, and then there's the, the freedom of being a graduate school in the US when sort of you have a very you know, not very heavy um, course load and then a lot of time to reflect and come up with your own projects and ideas and I thought that this was a very comfortable space for me I think actually I am who I am partly because I never wanted to leave grad school I mean I think maybe I'm sort of living an extended summer break um, in between uh, I don't know, grad school years right now, this is what it kind of feels like um, and, and I think that's not a bad thing if you make it work for you and um, Some of the skills that I, I suppose, so I would say grad school gave me the tools um, and then the skills had to come from experience, from wanting to do things like engage with the public, like write a blog. When I wrote a blog, it wasn't meant, I I never thought of it as something that has an audience, for example. I thought of it as a venting sphere. Um, So I had just come to Cairo. I'm very excited. I working on the city um, for my my PhD dissertation I'm still trying to pin down exactly what I'm going to do the revolution breaks out and before that uh, I arrived in like late 2010 and then in January everything changed and um, in those few months before I had constant observations about just small details that really like we take for granted when we live in cities that are well run, and then when you imagine what a city can be for you as a as someone who uses the city, uh Cairo doesn't assess, frustrate sometimes with these things. You know, like broken sidewalks, so you end up finding half pe- half the pedestrians walking on the asphalt alongside the cars. So I thought you know these are such small minor observations, but there were there was. They were happening literally all day long just by being alive in the city and so i thought uh, yeah maybe i'll like blog about it maybe this is too dumb maybe people already know this and they just don't care you know you ask yourself these questions and then when the revolution broke out um and obviously had a very important urban dimension um you know public space and the way the, the streets were used um and I just thought, okay, fine, let me start blogging. And this was more as a, as a venue for me to express some of these ideas that have accumulated over the previous months that have to do with just like very immediate reactions to the place, um, without sort of um, like talking down to anyone. You know, it was just, you know, it's okay to, to, to say things that might seem obvious uh, and put them out there because then it's, maybe it's not so obvious for someone else. And then this is probably why the Trial Observer gained uh, a readership. And it took me some time to accept that, like, oh, people are reading this. So maybe I should, like, you know, edit my English a little bit better or, like, phrase my, 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 my statements in a specific way. And, um, yeah, so, so this is how that started. But that's not something that they teach you in grad school. Um, and it also then with time, with consistency, it adds a whole dimension to who you can be in, 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 you know, as a practitioner in the field. Uh, as the, the, one of the troubling things for me was that Egypt seemed like a place where a lot of graduate students come to take information and leave. Yeah. And very little of that ever makes it back here or circulates within the public sphere here and I don't know there's something also very colonial about this it's a form of extraction you know let's come and absorb as much as possible for our own purpose and then get a 10-year position somewhere in Ohio great but I felt like okay there's something more that could be done Um, and I think partly because coming here wasn't only as a grad student but it was also as a sort of homecoming after having not lived in Egypt full-time for about 15 years
0: and you're from Alexandria right
1: unfortunately (laughs) Yes.
0: So was this your first time living in Cairo full-time? It was the first time living in
1: Egypt full-time as an adult. Uh, On your own? On my own, without my family, and not in Alexandria. Um, Alexandria is a very troubled place for me, and so Cairo was, not only is it more convenient, but uh, uh, it was more exciting.
0: I completely sympathize with what you say sort of about the colonial-esque experience of being here. I think the blog was definitely a great way of putting material into the public sphere because you did that in Arabic and English, right?
1: Uh, and, you know, my because of my background and the fact that I spent so much time away from Egypt and that basically all of my formative education... Well, some of my formative education was here, um, but then, you know, high school onwards was in the States, so Arabic wasn't... Although I was... It was always used at home and I maintained it um, throughout this time. I didn't write in it, so I was very insecure to do this. It took me some time. And, and when I did, it was in Amaya, which I actually found to be a more comforting way of expressing myself in Arabic without trying to jump hoops and, or relearn my own language. Um, it just felt like, you know, why not? Why not embrace Amaya as a form of communication when it comes to issues like, you know, architecture and urbanism? Um, and so that's 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 when the Arabic came in. But more and more people were I uh, encouraged people to to send content for the blog that's in Arabic. So it, yes, it was in both.
0: So I it's hard to from listening to you to characterize your relationship with Cairo as a city because mm. there seems to be pain and frustration from one perspective, but also I think there's a part of you and you can tell me if I'm wrong that's in love with the city. Yeah. So. What is your relationship with the city? Am I right? Am I wrong? What what level and degree do these emotions factor into your day-to-day?
1: I mean, I I would say most relationships, if not all relationships, have this sort of uh, frustration, love, you know affection but then I can't stand you right now you know and it's a it's a back-and-forth it's a negotiation and then what people end up seeing of most relationships is what's presented to the outside world but they don't see what's on the inside so I'd like to think of my relationship with the city in that kind of way um, where you have to negotiate or I have to negotiate how I communicate my feelings about the city but to take it beyond feelings and to root it in something factual Uh, put it in a historical context but also say something that's relevant about the now as opposed to constantly speak about, let's say, the way people romanticize a certain age. Everybody has uh, something in Egypt. People love to romanticize stuff mm-hmm. in this place, It's uh, probably people like to do in a lot of places, but Egypt is, is can, you know, people can float on romanticization and nothing else. You know, you romanticize the golden age of the cinema, you can romanticize the liberal era, you can romanticize uh, the Nahda, you can romantic you know, and, and everybody sort of has their obsession, which I think, as a side effect, always takes them out of the context that they're working in. Mm -hmm. And I think what I try to do is to anchor myself in some of this historical interest but also try to be relevant in the way I think about the city in the now and also be proactive in trying to imagine collectively uh, as part of a collective what the future of this place is, even if it looks pretty grim. I think it's important to talk about that Maybe or maybe not, we will be able to change that in future, but I mean, it's important to, to actually engage on that level.
0: So you have a new book out, Cairo, since 1900. It'll be out in spring 2020, I think, um, by the time this is probably already aired. What I enjoy about it when I was slipping through it was that the book... You know, it has all the classics, these great buildings that you admire when you're downtown, the little hidden gems in neighborhoods like around Midan and Gish, like you had, I think the Sakakini Palace in there. Um, I didn't put
1: Sakakini because it was actually built before 1900. It Really? Yeah.
0: I thought it was built in the 1930s.
1: No, Sakakini is like 1890-something, 98.
0: Really, I think it's written on the building itself, and I just I don't convert the history date in it, my head. It's
1: just before nineteen hundred, and I wanted to stick very. Clear. Do you wanna? Uh, yeah,
0: I'll redo that. But but to, wait, to finish telling me. You wanted to stick to after nineteen
1: hundred. I wanted to to stick to after nineteen hundred with the book because I thought uh, one of the fraught issues with architecture uh, history is uh, we uh, let's say there are European American. Western in general, uh, for the lack of a better word, art historical approaches to talking about architecture, which um, are really coming out of a very specific type of historical experience of how architecture came to be, and modern architecture in particular. So for example, you know, using the Industrial Revolution as a starting point is almost consistent, and then presenting architecture with an art art historical lens that looks really as a, uh, that looks really at a consecutive uh, series of styles um, <clears throat> that, are, you know, reflect different evolutions in technology and materials and so on. But it's always kind of about the sequential uh, series of styles. And so and it's, it's one of the problems, I think, is to avoid using that very, specific, you know, that approach that comes from a very specific historical experience that's not necessarily universal, although it has always claimed to be a universal mm-hmm. type of experience and looking at another site that has had its own uh, very different trajectory. And so I didn't want to make a book about modern Cairo as a sequence of styles uh, and adopt that kind of uh, approach, because the city defies this. Um, It has very different conditions from a lot of the places where those art historical approaches were developed. Um, It was always um, quite porous. It had... uh, A lot of networks that looked beyond Europe, uh, regional networks that influenced the way architecture was shaped, and it was never really about stylistic purity. Uh, There's a certain kind of not to use a cliche kind of idea, but you know the cosmopolitanism of Egyptian society and the cities in it, like Cairo. Is a different kind of cosmopolitanism that than maybe would have been counted for in a different historical context or geography. And so therefore, how do you account for the kind of architecture that was produced by this type of society? So, um, so I, I thought okay, the temporal frame is it's kind of a benign um so you know, 1900, so it's just it's a clean... It's, you catch everything. Yeah, you just catch what happens after yeah. a benchmark, even though the benchmark itself is kind of meaningless. It could have been prior since 1899. It doesn't honestly matter. Uh, but it's just a practical kind of starting point.
0: Well, what I really enjoyed about the book is that it has... As someone who's lived in the city on and off for the last couple of years, I have the sights that I enjoy. So... You know, I have a lot of memories of waiting for a friend outside of the um, Oqaf downtown, and seeing that in the book I didn't realize that it was built after 1900, and thinking about that building in the context of what was going on, of different styles that were taking place at the same time, it is sort of, it's very... Neo Mamluk, is that sort of the
1: design that that building falls into? Yeah, it, it has elements of that, but interestingly, that's a building that was built basically in three different phases, um, you know, and, and, and so it's in with different architects actually involved. Yeah. And, that, and this is, you know, one of the, again, one of the interesting uh, uh, usual sort of art historical things that we have to stick to is who's the author of the work, right? Who's the, who's, who's the artist, who's the architect? Um, In Egypt, what I found is that it wasn't always such a clear-cut situation because it wasn't a cult of celebrity or the cult of the star architect, uh, which, you know, something that really defines the way um, architectural history has been written in in Europe and in the US in particular. Um, And a lot of places I've already unfollowed this, and in Egypt I found that sometimes it is one architect but he's not really there as you know the work is not sort of a work of genius it's more like uh, this was the head architect at um for example and, or and so that's just what they had to do <laughs> that was just like their day job you know it's not like um, and and sometimes other people were involved because they you know were there or someone passed and someone else uh, picks up the job and completes it. So the building kind of becomes this composite. Um, it's more the norm as opposed to the exception. I think the idea of presenting architecture always as uh, the unique work of genius architect or something is the exception that we've normalized in uh, the way we understand view architecture. Um, so yeah, the coffee admi- administration building is is a, is a fun example of this kind of. Some would see it as confusing, but I would just say this is honestly how our built environment is shaped. It's by different parties who have different interests and they have to negotiate them both with the institutions, with the site, with the, with the budget, with their stylistic preferences. And you end up with these kind of intentionally hybrid or unintentionally hybrid buildings that then shape our, the way we see our environment.
0: And it's downtown, where you expect to see sort of European-influenced inst- uh, architecture, right? So it's a really, I think when you take a look back and you look at everything in the city as a whole, you see that the city was part of different waves of development than the way the neighborhoods were added to the city. I mean, you even include New Cairo, so to speak, the Gamma. And I was surprised when I flipped to the end of the book and you had the new AUC campus, which of course is very, takes a lot of motifs from Islamic architecture, but yeah. was built in the last 10 years.
1: Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting that you think that downtown, sh- you would expect it to be, um, to, to have a, a very European kind of architectural identity. Uh, the, in the first phase of buildings that were built in the 19th century when the area was planned uh, were, first of all, mostly mansions, houses and villas and mansions and with gardens. Um, and quite a big percentage was new Islamic because that was the trend, uh, or new Mamluk or new Islamic as in the sense that it takes different elements from different historical eras within the history of Islamic architecture, sometimes from even different places and combines them together. So it, it, a lot of this sort of new Mamluk um, uh, identity of the buildings that were built in what is today downtown were simply was simply gone when the area transformed into a a dense urban sort of downtown when it became a downtown you you have to think of it as more of a suburb when it was first built uh, a suburb that was envisioned to be a a city center Mm -hmm. but it wasn't immediately built as a city center and so time is not flat and it's not collapsed Mm -hmm. and so um, as time progresses different things are happening different things are fashionable people's interests are in different coming from, from different places they're traveling to different places and they're inspired by those things the clientele uh, changes uh, who's, uh, who's moving in, who's moving out and so the identity of the area we, and until today I would say it's not I mean, well probably now is the most static I was going to say the identity of the area was never really static but now it's kind of more or less the most static, as in there is the least amount of new construction, probably in all of Cairo, I would say, happening in the downtown zone. And we can maybe get back to this idea of protection and heritage, and what's the, what's the, what's the right way to do it, to approach it. But something like the, the campus of AUC in New Cairo, I mean, this is why doing the book the way I did it, I think for me was interesting. Mm. So if we look at, a, if we expand the time frame from ta- 1900 to the present, you'll see things cycle. You'll see things come and grow. Uh, sort of the interest in sort of revival of different elements of, uh, let's say, Islamic architecture, mango architecture comes and grows. Um, and every time it's motivated by something different. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new Cairo campus of AUC is no exception in the sense that uh, here is a, an opportunity for architects to imagine something totally new they literally have what the modernists always wanted, which is what's called a tabula rasa, a place that has like no memory. It's it's empty. There's nothing, and uh, and instead of growing with something that's rooted in the present that reflects, uh, let's say the latest uh, ethos or ideas or whatever, uh, they chose to find uh, or to construct a language that refers to a kind of a not very specific hybrid past um, which is an interesting way of also thinking about what does so what does that say about the present if if when we have those conditions that kind of budget that kind of landscape that kind of site um, we end up doing something that has a striped facade so it reminds us of a 13th century mosque interesting right we should think about it in those ways that like why why is a university referring to Islamic architecture? From a particular period um, you know dozens of kilometers away uh, with actually without being faithful to that style but also trying to be innovative by adding certain elements but also using concrete but also air conditioning you know what i mean so it's um I think the the most useful thing to do in this situation is to look at the building and try to understand why these decisions were made. What does it tell us about those who are behind those decisions and their desires and their maybe conflicted views of identity, uh, which is, I think, exactly where Egypt is stuck um, uh, probably for a few decades now since uh, since the failed Nasser's project. It has been an ongoing, never-ending... Uh, running around in the same circle kind of like who are we and what so what should we dress like and are we Western? Are we Eastern? Are we, what is it, What are these concepts and what's what should our architecture be? If you ask most students at AUC What they know about the history of Islamic architecture and if they how they think their campus actually connects still have very little idea I, I presume um, And I think that's a problem.
0: Um, well, it's a problem because AUC subscribes to the idea of the neoliberal university and For that reason, the vision that they're cultivating within the heads of the individuals that they're training is very much one of money should be the object. These classes are here as sort of parsley on top. I might cut this out. Anyway. (laughs) That's what I think about is that that it's churning out people to take the place of the so-called elite. But that elite is vacuous. The intellectual elite, to some extent, has dispersed and is finding new centers and isn't necessarily gravitating towards that university. But I'm...
1: I mean, the future university is just across the road yeah. from AUC, and it uses uh, basically the same uh, technique, but it pulls from a totally different set of references, even more garish, by... Combining I don't know what looks like an element of the Colosseum with a glass blue glass type of facade and uh, You know, it's not postmodern in the sense that it's not Born out of a genuine critique and understanding of the history of modernism local or international um, It's kind of I think the product of confusion which uh, is itself valuable, confusion is valuable, fine, but it's valuable in the sense that we can identify it and then understand where the confusion comes from and maybe like, that'll help us you know, position things. Um, otherwise, we end up just continuing in, in this, um, uh, it's, like, it's like shooting darts in a dark room. <laughs> you, know, you just don't know where they'll land. One time you'll get a, a new Islamic building, one time you'll get... You know, uh, a private villa with a pediment that says "Mashallah" inside of the the pediment. You know, one time you'll get a Colosseum fragment as part of a university that actually calls itself Future University. That's a little weird. <laughs> you know?
0: It's to me. I mean, on a complete aside, like I, I spent four years in the Gulf as a for high school. This just looks like. It, it, it's it's imitating so many... Like, the Gamma is just imitating so many different elements of that. When it comes to the garish facades, you see that a lot, that confusion. I think the Gulf... I think Shabt's is a little different sometimes. I think they've always been the weird one. But, like, so many parts of Dubai, like, not the main parts, like, off of the main sort of roads, have that garish... Mm. Like, the mansions are so confused. Like, they so, have columns, and then they i
1: mean i think um one of the conditions of let's say the the present condition of uh, of architecture in the region and you know places like the grandma and egypt and cairo express uh, this or the Gulf, as you say um is that they're really born out uh, a lack of confidence yeah. um in who the architect is or how they see themselves who the patron is most importantly because uh, i think also one of the uh, one of the Problematic approaches or things that our, um, traditional art history shows us is that you know the 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 building is really the work of the architect, but that's actually not true because you're in reality in most cases the building is really the work of the client who wants the architect to do A B or C, and then the architect tries to translate those those ideas uh, into into material form. But um, so the lack of confidence um, is definitely a condition. And then the other thing related to this is that the reference that makes sort of the connection with the golf is that the Dolf rose during a very interesting time when there was a surplus of resources and um, a nexus of things a surplus of resources, and then that was combined with uh, architects fleeing essentially yeah. the centers uh, that that they work out of New York, London, and so on. Um, modernism is mm-hmm. hitting a crisis in the West, and uh, offices need to expand and find new terrains to work. There's a preservationist impulse in most European cities mm-hmm. that have made have limited where architects can actually build bold and uh, interesting buildings. Um, And so the Middle East was happening, you know, at the same time, all of this. And then you have the rise of Islamism, the collapse of Nasserism. um, And so with all of this, what the international architects who were invited or were commissioned to come to the Middle East, mostly the Gulf at that point, and uh, tasked to, to, to design everything from hospitals to government buildings and so on, uh, as postmodernism is on the rise where they come from they have pushed the question of identity to the forefront and mm-hmm. if you, you I, and uh, the problem with I- identity is that's not something that you start with uh, it should sort of be the result of everything else uh, so instead of solving an architectural problem or an economic problem or a cultural problem I don't know uh, identity becomes the starting point and so the facade becomes the most important element, and so, you know, this is, and then we've been stuck in that arena for quite some time, and I think it's a, a quite a common condition in the post-colonial world, so nobody would really dare ask, a, you know, a German architect or, you know, Ram Koolhaas is like one of the most important architects in the world today. Um, from the Netherlands, nobody would ask them. You know how Dutch is your building. Yeah. You don't start with a Dutch idea, a, a static idea of a Dutch identity when you're designing a building in Rotterdam. That's irrelevant. You just do the best building you can do with the conditions, materials, uh, b- rules and regulations, and so on. And automatically, when someone looks back at it, uh, in, in ten years, then the, they'll say that was the identity of that time at that in that place, uh, and we're not doing this. Uh, And so the and all of these developments have sort of just um, entirely commercialized this approach, which is easier. Mm -hmm. It's easier, it's very uh, capitalist friendly in the sense that you can easily just like cut it up to a set of formulas that you then, oh, so you want a bunch of columns? Sure, you want a bunch of pediments? Sure, you want a bunch of mashallahs? Great, you know, and then we can just attach those to a pretty standard concrete uh, Mm -hmm. column and slab building and, and then we call it, you know, our identity.
0: So it sounds like for you, you want us to abandon this question of what are we? Are we East or West? Are we? Do I want India to
1: engage with that question? I don't care about that question. <laughs> no, but that seems to be your opinion on whether or yeah. not this
0: should be a part of the process. Because I think I think you're absolutely right. I think post-Nelsonism, especially, I don't think this question of are we East or West. I think it was asked mm. beforehand. I think like there were questions of I think Egypt in particular had you know are we Mediterranean? Are we this? Are we that? prior to the Nasser's project, but I think en masse, the Arabic-speaking world is facing this problem post... I think it's part of the post-colonial experience. And I think it's part of us digesting this narrative that we have to choose Mm. and that we have to... that East and West are concepts.
1: Well, I I mean, maybe... And I'll just try to voice my view quite honestly about this. And um, I think... We need a a genuine conversation about what does post-colonial mean? Egypt just this year marks 150 years of the Suez Canal. uh, uh, On the one hand, a developmental project, but a deeply colonial one. It also marks, not celebrates, it's marking also 100 years since the 1919 revolution. Mm -hmm. Neither of those very important events Um, are actually being officially marked in the sense that you know there are no uh, it's not on TV shows uh, there is no special soap opera that was produced about this or that there is the you know there are no lectures uh, there's it, it doesn't feel like like these two momentous historical moments are actually being marked so again if you ask probably most AUC students. So do you know that this is not only 100 years of AUC, but it's also 100 years since the 1919 revolution? They'll have no idea what you're talking about, most likely. Um, And um, that doesn't sound to me like a post-colonial context. That sounds like a deeply colonized context when people are so unaware of such important recent history and its um, political dynamics and how Egypt fit within a broader world and its relationship to Europe and, and, and so on. And so maybe a starting point uh, is to have a genuine societal, like, societal debate about what does post-colonial actually mean in an Egyptian context without you know entering um, and, and into uh, the echo chamber of post-colonial studies and its debates that were really done by and in uh, uh, you know, it might have been people from the, in the diaspora from the region who were engaged in a lot of this but you know it's proven to, for me to be quite a a conversation that has to do more with North American academia than anything else and uh, here we are in the supposed post-colony experiencing quite a colonized reality and nobody uh, has really engaged with this in a a direct and public way uh, in a different variety of fields from architecture to art to film and so on and sort of the regional dynamics of this how how has this colonial present been reshaped uh, to include other sets of forces, uh, regional players, you know, what the Saudi Arabia have to do with it all, with it all you know, things like this. We don't talk about these things. Um,
0: Is the book part of this conversation? Is the book meant for, to, to, influ- to, to, to inspire these thoughts in the reader? Because it, it looks like a guidebook, mm. but I've said before, it's a very well-researched guidebook. It has all these nuances baked into it. What do you want the book to do?
1: Um, I would say, and I'm thinking off the top of my head because I actually didn't necessarily like, do the book with or like write the book with, with a very clear set of intentions, my most obvious intention was that the city is so unaware of itself that uh, there needs to be an accessible, easy to digest uh, sort of reference that doesn't try to tell a story, that it's not about introducing uh, a set of characters, and uh, it's more about making quite visible, accessible, uh, you know, here are buildings, and these are not the only buildings that you should know about, but it's a sampling of buildings, uh, and within each one of these buildings, you get a little story about how it came to be, and just straight up artificial description as well to also help people, not know why it's amazing why it's great why it's genius why it's unique these are not again the categories that i'm concerned with but to look at a building and realize that literally every single building including ones that you would see today built in like an informal area they have stories and they come out of very specific economic cultural political uh conditions that produce every single building nothing is really just uh, comes out in a vacuum and i think what I would say is the most important thing for me is not only to make the city kind of legible uh, for both visitors and inhabitants, but to shape away maybe some of these inherited approaches to how we read architecture by looking for masterpieces, but by actually encouraging the fact that people can read a building that they take for granted and see as nothing special and see that it has a little backstory that actually might be interesting for them and interesting for us in general to understand what this building has come to be.
0: So let's switch gears again. What I like about the book is that it documents buildings that aren't necessarily there anymore. And famously, um, I used to settle a fight the other day. Someone insisted that Um Umgulthum's villa was still existent. And I was like, no, it's not. So I pulled out my PDF of the book and I showed it to them. Uh, So thank you for winning me that fight. But um, Imgurtham's villa, for example, is gone. It was demolished, I don't know, 10 years after her death, something like that, like five to 10 years after her Mm -hmm. death. Um, And what I appreciated about the book is that it documents it. But at the same time, I go back and forth myself. Is demolishment as part of the natural growth of a city. Cairo has been, or previous incarnations of Cairo has been demolished and reincarnated multiple times over the last 1,400, 1,500 years, even further back, perhaps. Do you, are you precious about preservation? What should we preserve? What should we document? How should we do so?
1: That's a, that's a complicated question, but first of all, Omkathoum Villa does exist, but in Baghdad, <laughs> so. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. that's so, the book. So there's the Iraqi version, uh, or Latin like Iraqi businessman who built himself a replica of it, that survived. Three Gulf Wars, but the villa in Cairo it hasn't survived. So, uh, one of this perhaps is a is a nice segue into uh, going back to a nineteen forty five article by one of the architects, the, one of the main architects that I really worked on and focus on, who is very present in the book. He has the most number of buildings in the book, uh, Said Karim. In nineteen forty five, when World War Two uh, ended, he uh, he published uh, in I think it was Al Ethnian with Dunia. Uh, Controversial little piece uh, that just asked, What if Cairo was destroyed in the war? Um, Essentially, he was lamenting actually that it wasn't because um, what a war does to a city in his modernist imagination, as he was seeing was uh, unfold, starting to unfold already in Europe, is it creates new ground for. The architect of today to make his intervention and so he felt like oh you know I'm in this city that uh, somehow survived the war so less less new fresh terrain for me to develop in my own vision and so that's a very typical modernist approach but it's like, it's like wishing for things to be demolished and destroyed but like we're not going to do it ourselves let's just hope this event that's bigger than us like a war will do it for us and so we can intervene and I think what's really interesting in that is that the sentiment he has he expressed in that short text is that Cairo actually faces more damage in times of peace this is uh, one of the arguments he makes than European cities uh, had to sustain uh, in a condensed way during World War II and I I think this is a sentiment that actually, I mean, it's a bit extreme, it's a bit dramatic, but uh, but it brings kind of, um, it, it feels very relevant today, one uh, of, you know, the consecutive regimes since Nasser have, you know, always talked about, you know, peace, uh, it's peacetime and it's uh, stability and these are actually the main tenants why they, they, they stay in power and they um, do what they do uh, but in fact this peacetime has actually quite, resulted in quite a um, a catastrophic uh, uh, transformation of, of Egyptian cities uh, in the sense that it's an incremental almost everyday kind of level of uh, demolish replace, demolish, replace, demolish, replace there is not a single I would say, there is not a single District in all of Cairo that, as a whole, as an area, uh, retains a, or let's say uh, marks a specific historical era. I can I can walk in Mexico City, which is a much more recent city, and probably stand in certain neighborhoods and be surrounded almost entirely by buildings that come from a, a, a relatively narrow range of years. That's something that I can't do in Cairo. That's mm-hmm. that's that's. I don't know if that's a separate thing or it's an interesting thing, or uh, and and the, the problem is that on the one hand um, there is something there's nothing more modernist than Catey's impulse, which is demolish everything, let's do it anew, which is also kind of. Uh, Anticipating that future generations will do the same to your own work as a modernist, right? right. That that it, it too might be seen as in the way of what's new and current at that time. So that's kind of an approach to say, you know, like the value isn't really in the buildings themselves. But on the other hand, um, cities need to preserve their memory, in in the sense that change is inevitable. But um, what's the histor- What's the historical sort of? register uh, that people have access to to help them understand their present and imagine their future based on actually having access to what the past in this place has looked like and you know, George Arbeid who's the who runs the um, who founded and runs the uh, Arab Center for Architecture in Beirut in, in a lecture uh, he, he says something really nice that I that I, that I liked, which is that uh, you know Modernism, the you know the the evolution of architecture is really we can think of them as a sequence of modernisms in the sense that in every era it was it was what people can can achieve within their limits and their needs and desires at that time, um, and so it's a sequence of those. So this sort of. Um, obsession, let's say, of one of those sections of this consecutive histories of modernisms, if we'd like to think of it in this way, uh, freezes things in place and it also makes it difficult for a new incarnation to take place. That's very different from what's happening in Cairo. Cairo is kind of a self-devouring city. It's not a city that's, um, that's sacrificing the old for the sake of really the new thing that represents us the best way today. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's self-cannibalizing, devouring, however you want to call it, but it's entirely run by um, unfortunate ideas of what real estate development uh, can be and should be. And architecture has always been about real estate in Egypt. Um, again, it wasn't the, about the work of genius architects. It was really those architects who were always trying to satisfy real estate needs. Uh, how much of that and in the book I mentioned for example that even an area like downtown so much of what we see today and look at and say this is a lot, this is a building that's worth saving was itself built on the ruins of another building that maybe lasted only like two decades or something like this um, so this is a long roundabout answer <laughs> but I guess what I'm trying to say is the question of preservation is complex Cairo is not sentimental about its history I've just earlier this year, a wikela that's nearly 900 years old, at the start of and Moise was demolished. Um, and this casually happened, you know. Uh, so we're not only talking about Umtathum Villa type of thing, we're also talking about, so where do you draw the line? And so I think preserva- the purpose of preservation um, has multiple things. In the West, it has also... Um, an interest for real estate, right? It, like when you preserve a building, you attach certain value to it that translates into money. In Egypt, that hasn't happened. The preservation, well, there is no really active preservation uh, specialization movement and so on, uh, but the heritage listing process doesn't is not coupled with an economic model that actually makes a heritage building uh, equal money. So if you look at the website of the um, national Order. Organ- what is it called? Nuh, National Organization for Urban Harmony which is the entity that doesn't actually have power to implement anything but is the one responsible for listing buildings on their website they list the buildings but they also show if there's any court cases to delist the buildings I bet you and I've looked quite extensive at this that all of the cases of uh, court cases to delist buildings are by their present owners so it's the total opposite of what's happened, let's say in New York City, right? Where people want a, a landmark's permission after what happened to Penn, in Penn Station and this has immediately translated still into capital, still into real estate, but in a very different way where actually it might be desirable to have a heritage listed building, not because the architecture is genius or not because of its, only its historical record, but it's also because it has a very uh, impactful, immediate economic, potential in the present mm-hmm. and investment and so on um so we should obviously Cairo needs to reconsider urgently it's um what it preserves and how it does it but what's really more important is having an accessible um archive of the consecutive and many layers of the city's history
0: is that achievable
1: um, I think at this point it might seem like quite a daunting task. Um, Egypt is not the most archive-friendly place in the world. It's a place that ironically I find has a deep history but very little memory. Um, it
0: can't, To use your word, it cannibalizes its own archives. Yeah, I mean
1: the ones that are available that people uh, b- 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 scholars come from all over the world to, to to study. They come for these archives that exist but they face difficulty. You know, there's a security apparatus that shuts it down. There's a lot of unknowns. Entire things like film archive get sold to other countries as we've seen. You know what I mean? And, and um,
0: I do want to ask one more question which is about so you've written a book. You have a blog. You do all these curatorial projects. What's next? What projects are you working on right now? What do you want to work on? What are your dream projects?
1: Oh, this is actually what I'm planning to do next week when I take some time off to do a little sort of to think about (laughs) Well, like to sketch out dream projects that I'd love to do in the next couple of years. Um, Well, um, I would say uh, something that I feel needs... uh, that I need, that I feel like I need to do, which is uh, to do something, a, a publication and an exhibition that comes out of the Modern Egypt project that I did for the British Museum. So that was mainly a collecting uh, project, so my job was really to build a collection for the museum. But and and everybody asks me, so many people ask me, um, you know, what's the exhibition? When is the exhibition? That was that an exhibition. No, there was no exhibition. This was really meant for the museum to have a collection. But there is a. I think a desire um, and for me a need at this point uh, that this needs to translate into so this is how we can use this collection that I've built Um, so I'd love to see in the next couple of years um, an exhibition and a publication come out of the Modern Egypt project. Um, uh, What's next also on my list um, is a book on Alexandria. Really? Yes. Well, the title that I have for it right now is something like Portrait of a Sinking City, so maybe that will change when it goes to the publisher, but it's... um,
0: Why do you... What's what's, what's so... Unless this is overly personal, what's so tortuous about Alexandria for you? Is it the...
1: Well, unlike Cairo, I have memories in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, I have memories in Alexandria. So I can approach Cairo in a way that's removed from personal experience. Mm -hmm. So my personal experience... Is in the present as opposed to Alexandria which certainly has an important element of my own personal past that has also shaped who I am so buildings and sites that as a child visiting Alexandria in the summers um, really made me actually love architecture and and want to pursue it as something that I do for a living they're gone and they're almost all of the landmarks that I admired There was the Shatby casino, which has been, uh, which was left to rot and then was redressed in some awful, just basically gone, it's redesigned as something completely different. The cabins that used to be along the the beach um, in different parts. I was from Stanley, I am from Stanley and Stanley Bay had this this beautiful cabins that wrapped all the way around and now Mm -hmm. there's a bridge that cuts right through it and half of the cabins were demolished. The Montezza uh, complex had, the Monteza Palace complex had its own, you know, Palestine Hotel, which is still there, but, you know, disfigured a bit. Um, mm-hmm. The cabins that were there are also gone. Crazy stuff, you know, stuff that, like, I, I, you know, Mamura, Mamura is this incredible late 50s, um, roughly around 1960, it was basically done. Uh, essentially, government-built uh, beach resort for the middle class. Uh, which was part of a set of these that were done in different parts of the country. Gorgeous modernist uh, aesthetic. And again, not because of the architects at the time trying to emulate anything else. This is actually what they thought represents them and the society at the moment. And so all of this is in either deplorable condition or is completely gone. Al-Salam Theater, which was this gorgeous... Open air theater on the corniche, uh, with this like very interesting shell structure that looked it made it look like a, a porcupine, and that's what I always as a child called it the porcupine. Uh, gone, and the massive military built hotel is going to displaced right now. Massive, um, you know, and the sea is literally uh, rising to the point. Alexander is one of the. Endangered. Most endangered cities in, in in the world actually when it comes to uh, to climate change and none of that's not part of the conversation whatsoever which is ridiculous so it's it's a very conflicted place for me um, um, and and for many other reasons as well and I find it to be always fascinating that uh, it's again kind of like it's a microcosm of what I was saying about Egypt deep history no zero memory it's like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's like a it's like a, an old person that's lived forever but actually they have no idea that they've lived forever because they have like an intense um, a case of um, you know some amnesia. amnesia or something and it's um, it's frustrating when you're then the visitor to that old person with zero memory and then you're like no but you did this and you were that and you looked like this and they have zero clue nor do they care um, and so, yeah, it generates my heart, really. But I think it's an important city to... Uh, it's a, it's an important lens for me to... Through which to actually look at Egypt in, in general. So that's definitely a project that's next in the work. I also want to write a novel. <laughs> so I have a few things that I'm imagining. Um, I don't know if in the next couple of years I can get all this done, but I'm fantasizing.
0: Thank you for listening, and again, a big thank you to Muhammad. You can follow Muhammad on Twitter at Cairo Observer. You can follow me at NAMonsoor. You can follow The Maidan at The Maidan on Twitter. The production team includes Micah Hughes, who you can follow at Micah A. Hughes, Ahmed Takeliolu, and most importantly, our audio editor, uh, Sophie Potts. A big thank you to The Loose Foundation. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions.